I'm Gabby Logan and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a famous face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. I'll also get some practical tips from an expert to help you get to grips with your finances. In this episode, I speak to Anthony Scaramucci, the former banker who enjoyed an extremely brief but memorable stint as the White House Director of Communications under President Trump. Born in Long Island, New York, Anthony worked at Goldman Sachs before founding his own global investment firm. He's the author of four books, hosts his own podcast, and is a regular commentator on business and politics on TV and radio, both in the US and here in the UK. When I spoke to him from his office in New York, he told me about his attitude to risk and how it's changed as he's got older, and why he's been to more Christmas parties hosted by the Obamas than by the Trumps, and why he follows Mel Brooks' advice above everyone else's. Anthony Scaramucci, it is great to meet you. Great to see you, uh, albeit virtually. Now, when I when I do these interviews, I try and get a sense of how my guests learned about money. You know, growing up, what were the influences from family or from friends? How investments were talked about? All I had to do was read the first few chapters of Trump, the Blue Collar President, your book, and I got a really great sense of what it was like to be a young Anthony Scaramucci. Just take us back to that. What sounded like the Italian family, an Italian immigrant family living the American dream in New York. Well, I mean, you know, yes, in hindsight, but at the time, I mean, we were, it was a rough and tumble family. It was uh, a lot of watching the budget. I can remember in the 1970s, you know, if my dad got his hours cut back, well, that meant the family got everything cut back and his hours got expanded. And we had a, a couple of more amenities, if you will, in the house. But, you know, when you, when you, when you mention that question, it makes me think of my grandfather, whose uh, first name was Augustine. So we have a lot of Augustines and a lot of Anthonys because that's what Italians do. They name people <laughs> after their ancestors. Uh, but my my grandpa, my pop, uh, took me to a savings and loan. Uh, when I was 11 years old, I had a paper out. And so I was making re- pretty decent money at age 11. And he told me to deposit $13. That was his lucky number. Now, that's for a lot of people, that's an unlucky number. But for whatever reason, my, my pop, that was a lucky number. And so I, I deposited $13 at age 11 in the first federal savings and loan. And he, so, he told me that I was going to become a millionaire if I did that. I'm glad you mentioned the paper round because uh, you had an interesting way of, of increasing your returns, didn't you, on your paper round? So no, what happened to me is I went to my manager, I was 11 years old, and there were these blue collar apartments near my house, and they're still there actually, they're called the Dolphin Green Apartments. And so I went to Mr. Fusco, who unfortunately is not alive anymore, but I, I said to him, I need free papers on Wednesdays. And he said, what the hell do you need free papers for? I said, well, I'm going to start handing them out to these Irish and Italian and Jewish women that live in this apartment building by my house. And I will grow this paper out. And so I used to drop the paper off in the front door, ring the bell for everybody. And then on Thursday, that was collect. And so what did that mean? That means I got the, the money for the paper out. And I would knock on those very same doors. I said, did you enjoy the free paper, Mrs. Lenahan or Mrs. O'Malley or, you know, Mrs. DeFeo? And they would say, yes. So, OK, great. Do you want daily and Sunday or just daily, which was like Monday to Saturday? And, you know, it took me about a year, but I had the largest paper out in the town. And they had to get three people to replace you. I, I made the uh, junior high school baseball team, so I gave up the paper route. Mr. Fusco was super upset with me, but you know, <laughs> I got to tell you, it was it was a lot of fun that paper route, and so I remember it very fondly. 
And, uh, you know, but it got me the entrepreneurial bug. You know, my dad had worked from, you know, I remember my mother putting his lunch pail in the refrigerator at 10 o'clock at night. He was already in bed and uh, he got up at 3, 34 o'clock in the morning. He was on the job at 5 a.m. Uh, and he worked till three o'clock in the afternoon. So if you didn't sit at his dinner table at 5, 15, you know, you got hit with a belt, you got hit with a, br- I mean, you could get hit with anything, a wooden spoon. It was a totally different period of time back then. But if, if you went to sports, that was the only excuse. So if you played mm-hmm. baseball, football, soccer, you could miss your, you, you could miss my dad's dinner table, you know, but you couldn't otherwise. Uh, he worked with his hands. He always said to me, you know, when you're having a bad day, just remember that you're indoors, you're out of direct sunlight, and there's no heavy lifting. But that wasn't the case for my dad. You know, he was he was outside for 40 years, 42 years, uh, hot and cold weather, uh, and there was heavy lifting. And so, so to me, I'll always respect and honor him. You know, we didn't grow up poor, by the way. I would never tell anybody that. Mm. I would never dishonor my dad's work ethic by telling you that. Uh, I grew up poor. I didn't grow up poor. But life was tough. It wasn't It wasn't easy, was it? One of the funnier things that happened to me when I was in the White House, the BBC, some wise cracker at the BBC said, well, there's no way this guy could have gone to Harvard from a blue-collar family because you guys have your, like, caste system and your aristocracy mm-hmm. and all that nonsense. And so they sent, like, a truck out to my parents' house. And then they were like, okay, well, he obviously did grow up in a blue-collar neighborhood. You know, So I thought that was sort of funny, but... At the end of the day, you know, my parents thought Harvard was Hartford Law School. They had no idea. They, when I was getting ready to go, my mother had the map out. She was like taking me to Har- Hartford, Connecticut. I was like, Ma, no, no, it's Harvard, Ma. And she's like, well, why the hell would they name it Hartford Law School if it's not in Hartford? Because it's not <laughs> named Hartford Law School, Ma. You know, that's the family I grew up in, basically. So a family that was hardworking, it sounded kind of chaotic in a beautiful way. Lots of noise, lots of, you know, arguments and love. And, and, you know. and, and, and sometimes a less than beautiful way. OK, I mean, listen, I'm I'm a pretty authentic guy. You know, there's a there's a motto in our family. Let's put the fun in the word dysfunction. OK, there's a lot of dysfunction, too. I, I don't want to pretend that it was a uh, idyllic family by any means. It wasn't. You know, this was a hardworking, tough neighborhood. Um, and there were some tough people in my family. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter is I wouldn't change it for anything in the world because, you know, it gives you a perspective. You know, I, mm. I can sit here today. I've made a reasonable amount of money. I built a halfway decent business. I worked in the White House, albeit for 11 days. But I grew up in a neighborhood. So when I see the struggle of other blue collar people, I can identify with them. My mm. cousins are clamming out on Long Island in Oyster Bay. I've got cousins that are installing auto glass. I've got cousins that work in delis, pizzerias. Um, so, you know, it grounds you. It makes you have a perspective that I think is helpful. It was interesting. You were on this, um, where you lived, you could easily get to a place. I think it was, was it Sands Point where the big houses were? And you talk about that. And I wonder at that age what your definition of wealth was. Was it was it to be able to afford a house like that? Or did wealth encompass any more values than just material wealth? Well, I mean, it was 100% material wealth at that moment. I think you, as you get older and more philosophical, you realize that that's only a component of your overall wealth. You know, obviously mm-hmm. the number one is your health and family. But yeah, no, I had my swim bicycle. I had all those papers. I used to deliver the papers and then I used to take a ride down to the point. So I we lived uh, on Long Island. The point 
Sands Point was actually written about by F. Scott Fitzgerald in the novel The Great Gatsby. And mm-hmm. so it was East Egg in the, in the movie. That's where Daisy Buchanan lived. Um, and so, uh, you know, we always, there were gigantic mansions down there. I mean, gigantic. And so, mm-hmm. yes, uh, my dad had a small fishing boat, which I learned how to water ski on. We used to take that boat out from Manhasset Bay to the point where you could see those mansions. These were Gold Coast mansions. And yes, I wrote down in my diary when I graduated from that public high school in that area that someday I would have a house on the point. So, you know, what happens is I ended up making enough money to have that house, but then your tastes change (laughs) and I didn't want to be that far away from the city. So I moved into a town closer to the city, you know, so it's funny how life is. You know, my mentor said he was going to come out of the army and he was going to live in California, but he ended up living in uh, Eaglesmere, Pennsylvania, because that's what he ended up liking as he got older. So you're, you're But you had games. those material goals. You had those. And you, you were living not far from Wall Street, which at the time, I imagine, you know, it was the epicenter, wasn't it, of, of wealth and the growth of kind of the markets. And it was the place to work. So was that for you the kind of holy grail? That's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be on Wall Street. I told my oldest son, who just graduated from Stanford Business School, I went to Wall Street because I knew that that would, if I just hit the bell curve, meaning if I was just an average player on Wall Street, I would make enough money to afford my family. And so um, I went to law school. I would like to tell you I was some kind of genius, but it was very superficial thinking. I went to law school because I read an article in 1985 that they were paying lawyers, first-year lawyers, Sixty-five thousand dollars a year. Again, that's in nineteen eighty-five dollars. So, I think my pops, my dad was making probably thirty-three thousand dollars at at that time on a construction rig. And I thought to myself, okay, if I could start at a law firm, double my dad's pay, why mm. would I need any more money than that? That's literally the superficiality of my thinking. But then when I got to law school, I absolutely hated it. I mean, I was ready to like leave. And of course, my mother, you know, it's like a Jewish mom. Italian and Jewish mothers are like the exact, the guilt is like overwhelming. My mother was like, I think, threatening suicide if I left. So I stayed and completed law school, but I went across the river to the Harvard Business School and I started interviewing on, on Wall Street. The best bank at that time was Goldman Sachs. So, of course, that's the one I wanted to go work at. I got the job there. Uh, but then, of course, I got myself fired from that job because I stunk at the job. And I think that's another big lesson for people that I did write in that book. Don't don't go for the job you think is the coolest job. You gotta go for the job that you're good at or something that you're passionate mm-hmm. about. But I was insecure at that time. I was 25. I wanted to show my friends like a big show off that I could go to the best, coolest job and get it, except I happened to stink at that job. And so I, 18 months after I got it, I got fired. But then the great irony of all that is I got rehired at Goldman. What goes around comes around. I think it's that the lessons that you learn and, and talking about that actually is any entrepreneur has to go through those, don't they? You don't you don't just kind of hit on the big idea straight up. It's how you respond to those. I think it's elementally true. Every entrepreneur, Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates, they failed with the first operating system. They had to go do digital research and buy that system. Steve Jobs obviously had his ups and downs. Jeff Bezos, um, when they unveiled his portrait at the National Portrait Gallery, he listed all the things that he misfired on, including the Kindle phone. 
Elon Musk will tell you straight up that there was a six-month period of time where he thought both Tesla and SpaceX were going to go bankrupt in that six-month period of time, and all the money that he made from PayPal was going to go down the drain with with it. And so I have unfortunately been in those moments and have empathy. Of course, I haven't had the success of those couple of men, but it's been pretty good. And I think that's another lesson if you're out there working and you're out there uh, you know, taking the risks, mm-hmm. you have to be comfortable with a couple of things sliding on you. But by and large, if you're taking the risks and you're hardworking, it'll work out. And then how do you evaluate risk? When you've had an experience like that, does it make you more gung-ho? Because you've, when you've built back again, you know, and you've, mm-hmm. you've been down, you've come back, does your attitude towards risk change? Well, it probably does. I mean, you know, I mean, my wife here just said to me once, the reason why you're giving the money to the hospitals and giving money here and giving money there is you think you're going to continue to make the money. You know, I think what happens is if you're not the entrepreneur, if you're the descendant of somebody and you're not making the money yourself, you get more anxious about it. So I think as you get older, you get more confident that you can put things back together if you needed to. Uh, but this is also super important for me. I have five kids, so I mm-hmm. I drive those kids to make sure that they're working, but they're also doing what they want. You know, so I don't. I'm not telling them they have to come into my business, but whatever the that you decide you're doing, you got to go at 120 percent at. But how hard is it to have kids who have got a lot more than you had as a kid? I mean, there must be times where you get a bit frustrated as a parent, thinking, "God, you don't know how lucky you are." And how do you stop yourself, kind of, from evaluating their childhood. It's funny you say that because we had this conversation over the weekend. We had a Scooby-Doo party for my four-year-old. I think the party was like a bar mitzvah. I don't know. It was like a gigantic party. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, listen, I live by Mel Brooks's adage. Mel, Mel Brooks, the American comedian, 95 years young, he says, hey, relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. I think it's, it's the <laughs> absolute bit. And so my attitude is I spoil the living daylights out of my kids, but I also... I have two parenting methodologies, which are quite unorthodox. I'm about bribery and threatening. Okay, so those are my two tools, okay? And so my thing is I try to shower my kids with everything, but I want them to, to work super hard. And if it works, great. You know, I can't you, – you, you do have children? Yeah, yeah, I've got twins who are 16. Right, and so they've got personalities of their own. They came – to you from God or the universe and they're coming through us, but they're not us and they're going to do whatever they do. And so I think it's just important for me to try to give them some guidance about living passionately, mm-hmm. and, but also, you know, being human. You know, when I got blown out of the White House, a lot of people would have rolled on something like that. I got up like a crash dummy and just dusted myself off, went back to work. My kids, since you read the book, you may remember this, my son, AJ, for the first time in my life, I felt like I was being parented by him. It was a week after mm-hmm. I got fired. I was walking with him in Santa Monica on the promenade, and he's like, Dad, geez, are you gonna are you okay? And I'm like, Yeah. I said, Not only am I okay, watch what I do with this thing. And that is a big lesson to your kids, isn't it? How you treat disappointment. You gotta get up. Um, being fired from the White House was a huge disappointment. It turned out to be a blessing. I didn't know that at the time, but it was a huge disappointment. But, uh, you know, but look, I have a phenomenal relationship with General Kelly. He fired me. It's what you make of things that happen Mm -hmm. to you. It's not necessarily what happens to you. And it's about your mindset, you know. And, you know, I can still see my dad in that green uniform, you know, with the grease on him. 
and the boots. And uh, unfortunately, he's lost a good part of his hearing because he worked in heavy machinery at a time where we didn't put the you know the buds mm. in or the there was no health and safety. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have the same concerns, and so I think about him, and I'm like, whatever the hell I'm going through, it's easier than that by like a quantum. I want to talk a bit more about your your risk strategy and investments, and but but as you've started talking about the White House, your political life took a lot of twists and turns. You it was Obama at Harvard at the same time as you, and you backed Obama, didn't you originally? Yeah, so I'm like the typical business person. Remember, Trump backed everybody. He gave money to Schumer. He gave money to Kamala Harris. He gave money to Hillary Clinton. Just keeping all keeping all the plates spinning. Yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a practical business person. So I gave you know look. You have to remember, I had no network. This is quite a unique American thing, actually, what you're talking about now, actually. When you, you alluded to it earlier about English culture and that kind of old boys well, yeah, club. Yeah, I mean, and, look, I have a, uh, I have a uh, partner of mine. Uh, he's from Bethnal Green. Okay, so he was stealing hubcaps as a kid. And he was probably running from the twins, right? I mean, he's old enough to remember the twins in Bethnal Green. And so he's here in the United States, they think he's talking the Queen's English. I know he's like from Brooklyn, you know? I mean, the point is like, you can come to the United States, you can recreate yourself. But if you're in Great Britain, I spent a year there at the London School of Economics and I watched these Brits go after each other and say, oh, where are you from? Or your accent's from here or your accent's from there. And all of a sudden they were sectionalizing them and caste orientating them and trying to determine who was better than the other which is a total, I mean, you're probably not allowed to curse on this, so I won't curse, but it's a total bunch of bunk, you know? And then and then I'm like, who cares, you know? But, but the point being, you're here in the United States, you still have things you have to do. I was in 100% polyester at my first job interview. So, I mean, I had a polyester sh- shirt on even, you know, white shirt, polyester suit, polyester tie. I was fully flammable for my first job interview. <laughs> I mean, I could have caught fire in the room. And I remember the I remember the partner looking at me. He's like, "You're super smart, but I got to tell you, you were the worst dressed person that we met at Harvard." And I remember thinking, "Really? I mean, this is my best stuff. I mean, what is he talking about?" So I like bringing that story up because I want to tell young people. You know, that was embarrassing for me. That was a story loaded with self-consciousness. Mm. But you know what? It was a learning experience. I went out to- And also, Anthony, a bit of snobbery. I know you kind of what you're saying about the English system, but the American system looks on the surface to be more democratic. But actually, you've still got to then kind of buy your way into places, haven't you? Please, please. It's very snobbery. I had to create my own business. Come on. With my attitude and my personality, they wouldn't let me run one of these big banks. I mean, come on. I had to go create my own bank. I mean, not a bank, my own asset management company. Which you you did. Which I did. I did twice. And things were things were going so well that then the next step for you is naturally to kind of get involved in politics and to back, as you say, who you think is going to help you or is going to... No, and I got into politics because I had no network. I never hit a golf ball. I never swung a tennis racket. I never saw the inside of a country club. I never saw the inside of a corporate office. I had no corporate mentor growing up because we lived in a blue-collar neighborhood. We had landscapers and my dad was an operational engineer which is euphemism for a crane operator and we had mechanics we didn't have ceos where i was living Mm -hmm. so when i got to goldman and got fired and rehired i was in the high net worth area i had to meet wealthy people so i said okay i'm going to go into politics i wrote my first check to rudy giuliani um it was a 250 dollars check uh he lost that election 
uh, which was actually very good for me because we became friends. And then when he won in 1993, he opened up his network to me, which was very helpful. That's why, I don't know if you ever noticed, I never say anything bad about Rudy. But anyway, um, I'm in politics as the garden variety fundraiser. So what do you do when you're the garden variety fundraiser? You go to, you go to parties and you meet people and those people help you grow your business. And then a guy by the name of Barack Obama decides to run for president. One of my buddies calls me and says, do you remember Barack Obama from law school? And I'm like, no, I don't remember Barack Obama. From law. Well, he gave the speech in Boston at the convention in 2004. I say, I sort of vaguely remember that. Well, he's running for president and we're doing a big fundraiser for him. And I knew him in law school and I want you to come to the fundraiser. So I was politically agnostic at the time. I said, sure, I'll come to the fundraiser. So now I have my check and I'm meeting then Senator Obama. And I walk up to Senator Obama. I said, listen, we didn't really know each other in law school. I said, but I'm about to write you a big check. I said, can I lie to everybody and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> and Obama looks at me. He's like, hey, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we could take it all the way back to Hawaii. How's that? <laughs> and so and then he, you know, he smiled. Obviously, he's like the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. So you know what I did? I, I ripped up the check. I, I wrote him another check. I doubled the amount of the check. I, and needless to say, I, I, I went to more Obama, Barack and Michelle Obama Christmas parties at the White House than Donald Trump once, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, look, I mean, I, I supported him because my friends were supporting him. And I'll tell you something ironic. At that time, I said to myself, wow, how am I ever going to know somebody that's actually running for president? Well, it turned out I ended up knowing a couple of these people, you know, including uh, the current president. But but. You know, I was a Republican, so when he started doing less than Republican things, I went to go work for Governor Romney, um, and that was unsuccessful, although Mitt's a great guy, and I learned a lot from him. And then, of course, I was with Scott Walker and then Jeb Bush, so Donald Trump was not even choice number one or two, mm. but when he called to recruit me, uh, that's where the ego kicked in, and, you know, mm. you do a lot of regrettable things based on your ego. So. If your listeners are paying close attention, keep your ego in check because mm. the thought of working for a presidential candidate that could be successful was probably too tempting for me. I'm in, I'm in the Oval Office. Um, yeah, I had been in the Oval Office a few times. I was there once uh, when President Clinton was in office. I was there once when President Obama was in office. And I had been to the Oval Office a few times before I took the job. But I don't care how many times you go to the Oval Office, it's an intimidating place to be. Your heart is racing. And so uh, it's my first day on the job. I'm sitting across from him at the Resolute desk. And if you look up, there's a Plaster of Paris seal of the presidency of the United States on the, on the Oval roof, you know, or the, the ceiling of the office, I should say. So I look up, I look over at President Trump and I say, I mean, we're in the office of the President of the United States, you're the President of the United States. Let me ask you something. I said, my heart's racing a little. When you sat behind that desk, was your heart racing? And in, in fairness to him, it was very human what he said. He said, yeah. The first time I sat here, I took in the magnitude of the situation and my heart was racing. Now, you may or may not remember this. I think Theresa May was his first state visitor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he then said to me, and then they tell me one morning, I'm going to, I got to, greet Theresa May, the Prime Minister of England, at the North Portico. And my first reaction is, where the 
hell is the North Portico, right? He didn't even know. I mean, you know, and it was like very human. And then he looked at me and he said, but I got to tell you something, Anthony, there's so much work. You'll be surprised at how quickly this just becomes an office and you won't be as intimidated. And I got to tell you, I was only there for 11 days, but by the third or fourth day, he was 100% right about that because you were just absorbed in the work. So has it made you a better person, that experience, do you think? Um, more humble. It's made me more psychologically aware. I think it's made me more uh, psychologically minded. I think I have a lot more empathy for people that go through things. I think if you're having a bad day, you should call me. I can regale you in one of the worst days of my life, which was July 31st, 2017. Um, I had missed my child's birth on the 24th of July. I was in, I was stuck in uh, West Virginia. My wife had filed for divorce on me and I was fired from the White House. I was having a pretty bad day, okay? <laughs> um, yeah. and, but I reconciled with my wife. Obviously, I've got a great relationship with my now four-year-old and uh, I've been humbled. And if I'm having a bad day, you can look back at that or you look at the work that my dad has done and it's anchoring. But if you have a bad day or one of your viewers have a bad day, tell them to call me so I can cheer them up. I can I can put perspective on things and I can provide them with a reality dose that uh, you can get through just about anything as long as it's not a health issue. What do you think public perception of you is now? My grandmother... My mom's mom, I was very close to her. She had a great expression, which is cliche, uh, but it, you know, she used to say, what other people think about you is none of your business. <laughs> and so what you try to do, you try to spend your whole life trying to do that, of course, but you're in the age of social media and media awareness and media perception, so it's impossible. Anybody that claims that they don't care what other people think about them, I think is really not being genuine. Genuine. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. there's some, you know, mendacity in what they're saying. Having said that, when you get destroyed the way I did in 2017 and you're lit up by every late night comedian and you're rumbled on every cable show, uh, you have to build a tough enough skin where you really don't care what other people think about you. Not saying that it doesn't bother you, of course it does, but I honestly don't know what people think about me. Um, but the truth of the matter is I don't let that run my life or ruin my day. Tell me, um, away from the kind of White House and, and the mire of American politics, your business life, you, you've alluded to your, your two businesses, what's the best investment you've ever made? Well, I mean, I'm not going to say the cliche thing like investing in my kids and stuff like that. The, 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 the best financial investment that I've ever made uh, sort of crazy, but like one of them was Avion tequila. I don't know if you drink tequila, uh, but my friend Kenny Dichter, I think I was 15 to one on that investment. Uh, we put it in the uh, HBO show Entourage, it caught fire, and then we sold it to the French uh, spirits company, Pernard, I think it was called. Uh, that was an incredible investment. Uh, I, I just followed up with him with Wheels Up. It's a private aviation company that's worked out very well. I have a, uh, a crypto, I have a piece of a crypto uh, exchange, which has been marked up significantly. Um, but I also have a series of losers. You know, I, I don't want to sit here. Yeah, tell on, us, tell us, I was going to yeah, say, I tell don't want to sit here thing. on your show and say, oh, here are my 10, I'm a genius. No, I've gotten my butt mm -hmm. kicked in a series of losers as well. Uh, I guess the worst investment I ever made and the most painful one 
was at the height of my investment arrogance. And so let me tell you when that was. I was 27, and for some reason I decided that I knew more about biotechnology than biotechnology people or scientists or medical doctors because I'm 27, I obviously know everything. And so I had the worst thing that can happen to you. I bought these call options on a biotech company um, and they, they exploded to the upside. So now that fortified me with great confidence about what a genius I was. <laughs> and so I doubled down as this company was moving from phase two to phase three uh, approval for their FDA drug. And they didn't get the approval. And so I had all these call options that were levered in my account. Unfortunately, I didn't even understand. This is how arrogant and stupid I was. I didn't even understand how the leverage worked in my personal account. And so the margin desk called me at Goldman Sachs and told me, well, you've got to pay 50, you're, you're in the hole by $50,000. And let me tell you something, at that time in my life, where I had $150,000 of school debt, I really couldn't afford it. And so they called me and they said, you got to come up with $50,000. I had, I had no way to do that. And so I went to go see my boss, who's a phenomenal guy, by the way. He's 84 today. He's just a phenomenal guy, and he's a young, vigorous guy, till, thank God. I went to go see him, and I explained to him what I did. And he looked at me and said, man, you are as stupid as stupid could be, and hopefully you learned your lesson that the markets know more than you do, and the markets are very humbling. And so he met the margin call for me, and he took it out of my pay for the next uh, year. Uh, every month, he, took, he deducted it from my pay. Um, but it was a very big lesson for me in like knowing what you don't know. It's mm -hmm. not even what you don't know, like knowing what you don't know. It's the unknown things, or as Rumsfeld used to say, it's the unknown unknowns that get you. You know, it's like okay, the economy's growing in 2020, but then it's going to come to a standstill because of the pandemic. You know, that typically doesn't happen. You get some time to grade out of a security or grade out of a situation as the economics, you know, they start to waver in, in terms of economic cyclicality. But this was a very strange situation where the economy just came to a complete stop in 2020. I don't think a lot of people were prepared for that. I would say that we were less prepared for that than I would have liked to be but more prepared for it because of my past life experiences of imbecility where I've, <laughs> I've protected myself. And as I tell my staff, we are not smarter than the collective wisdom of the market, but what we can do is play the percentages and you know get, get some of the big macro themes right. You have an optimism, which is really also very kind of tangible. Do you feel hopeful for the world right now? Because there's no. so many reasons on the face of it to not be. Yeah, well, there's no question. Of course, I feel hopeful because remember, the world's happening exponentially, but really, we often think linearly. You know, that has to do with our the primordial system. Remember, you're in a 100,000-year-old piece of machinery that hasn't had a software upgrade in 100,000 years. This phone has gone from iPhone 1 to iPhone 12 in 10 years. Okay, so this is constantly being upgraded, but not you or me. And so we have a lot of primordial atavistic instincts and so we're designed to think linearly mm -hmm. but the world is moving exponentially so Thomas Malthus uh, in the 1840s said you know I got bad news we're, we're gonna starve we we can't grow the food fast enough to absorb the growth of the population mm -hmm. so we're gonna starve but he left out irrigation 
genetically modified foods. He left out a whole host of different things. And so now we have a problem with obesity-related disease as opposed to starvation. Mm -hmm. We have the environmental dilemma on us right now, and we're late to the table. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no question about that, that we're late to the table because we're in an economic competition globally. And so we're watching our adversaries burn up fossil fuels and coal, and we're like, okay, well, we don't want to fall behind them, so let's light the match on the world. Uh, but I think that ultimately we're going to need the political will to stop doing that and to make the conversion. Now, are we too late? The doomsday sayers say that we are, but I predict that we're not because the collective will of man and womankind is such that we can solve most of these problems that have been created. And they were mostly created by men. That's not to sound sexist, it's just it was a man's world until mm -hmm. we started opening it up. But it'll be, mm -hmm. it'll be solved by men and women. So I am optimistic. And I'm not falsely optimistic. I'm not a politician. I'll, I'll tell you that I'm optimistic, grounded in what I see as an aspirate, by and large, an aspirational society of gifted people. And so our big problems right now is that we have failed policies because we have to continue to shift economic goods, the economic rent, if you will, to all classes in the society. When we do that, and there's a no police oblige in the society, uh, everybody does better. When we're taking it for ourselves at the top and we're leaving everybody else behind, people get sore and they like causing revolutions. You know, And, and so we have to figure that out as well. But I think we will do that too because uh, it's not because I just think that. I just know that there's a lot of smart people. This current crop of politicians have been ruined by their sloppism. You know, they only think about themselves. And they've been ruined by the, uh, the baby boomer experience of wanting it all and overpromising. But this new generation of millennials, I think, by and large, recognize uh, that they have to fix it. And I think that they will. Anthony, it has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time and uh, your honesty. Well, I appreciate you reading the book. I think it's you, me, and my mom are the only three people that have read the thing. <laughs> and by the way, by the way, it is an international bestseller. And if you don't believe me, you can come into my basement. I can show you every copy I had to buy to make it an international <laughs> bestseller. Uh, well, well, I'm sure anybody who's listened to you there will want to know a little bit more. And I think your early life actually is is so um, interesting in terms of where you've got to now. And it is that a lot that of great luck. kind of you know, it's a lot yeah. of work, but you got to have a lot of luck too. You know, don't you know? Every smart, successful entrepreneur knows that some of their success was born from providence or the gifts of the universe. A lot of luck. Let's have a chat now to Lee Wilde, Head of Equity Strategy at II. Uh, good to see you, Lee. Uh, let's talk about risk and why it's so important to get our heads around it. We talked a little bit, didn't we, there to Anthony about what he considers risk and how it's changed through, through his life. But what is it? <laughs> well, I mean, risk is, is what we do when we get out of bed in the morning. It's, uh, we all take risk. Um, uh, some people like to take more risk than others. Some of us are naturally more more cautious and you know we'll look both ways as we cross the road and and we'll we will sort of be very conscious of 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 our actions whereas other people are um you know, have a, a, a clearly a, a love for high risk uh, you know base jumpers free rock climbing that kind of thing so it's j j how you live your life almost is that's what risk dictates um, but understanding it is absolutely essential. Um, if you're an investor or, or thinking about 
investing. So it's it's those natural traits that um, are evident in in these in investment scenario. I mean, they'll dictate what assets you buy, how much you invest, when you sell. All those things are dictated typically by your your attitude to risk. We're taught that the greater the risk you take, the greater the potential rewards, but it, it's, it's not quite as simple as that. No, and I, I guess it's also not quite as simple as saying it's to do with age or, you know, you mentioned there kind of high adrenaline sports, which are kind of normally associated with youth. But actually, you could get two 50-year-olds with almost the same income level and the same kind of outgoings, and one of them will be prepared to take more risks than the other. So what, what is it, do you think, that drives and affects is it something that's inherent within us or is it is it something that, you know, is almost intangible, really? I guess in an investment scenario, it's what your objectives are. So if you're, it depends what you're, as an investor, if you're saving for a wedding or perhaps a, a deposit on a house, the lowest um, risk you can take is by putting your uh, money in a bank account, which mm-hmm. uh, in these days pays you know, next to no interest. But you know your money will be safe. But with um, longer-term objectives, like you know, putting money into your pension over a, a, a number of decades, you might uh, you might want to take a little bit um, more risk. So you, you know, for the wedding, you don't want to blow your savings. You don't want to put your money into a uh, some high-risk shares that I mean, mm. that could double or triple in value. But equally, you could be end up with nothing, and you'll have a pretty poor wedding um, <laughs> and a, a, a very a very mm. tiny house. A longer term view, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So, so how can II help with risk? Well, I mean, we've got a. Um, you know, Anthony um, Scaramucci uh, um, uh, talked about um, uh, the approach to risk being influenced by confidence. Now, um, he's right, of course, but but how do you gain that confidence? Now, it, it leads nicely into our, our knowledge centre, which we um, launched um, on the the, the Interactive Investor website um, last year, and. You know, knowledge can help investors make better investment decisions. And, and with that education, um, that mitigates or can help mitigate risk. So investor education is, is crucial. So the knowledge section of our um, website specifically talks about risk. It's called Risk and You. Now we look at risk and how investors can understand its, its significance. And finally, Lee, can risk be boiled down into some quick tips for us? Uh, yes, I mean there are um, they're really simple tips, and I think reminders for for preparing, especially beginner investors, to to take on risk. So always best to have some some rainy day money for emergencies. I mean, we, we suggest three to six months of, of salary in cash, uh, or if you're planned spending. So uh, that ensures that if something happens, you need access to your cash that you can do so easily, and, and you won't have to sell investments and. They could disadvantage you. Also, clearing your debts, tackling the most expensive ones first. It's important to have that rainy day money, but it's uh, um, it, it's, it's not, not normally a good idea to prioritise additional savings over reducing debt. So it's all about uh, this is all again. The theme here is is about reducing your risk um, and setting yourself up for for, for investing. Uh, um, and the third is to be committed to investing for at least five years. I've said our model portfolios are typically you know, for investors looking to, to have that, that sort of longer term approach. And uh, a couple of other things, uh, regular investing is um, can mitigate some of the risk of investing in the stock markets too. Rather, rather than committing lump sums um, randomly, 
uh, and you can invest regularly from as little as £25 a month. And as I say, that just helps spread the risk. You're not putting a big lump sum in at what turns out to be the top of the market. We don't know whether it's the top of the market today, tomorrow or, or, or yesterday. So um, that, that's a, a good way of, of spreading your risk. Um, global funds and investment trusts, uh, they're a pretty good place to, uh, uh, to start. Again, because they spread risk um, broadly, it's all about diversification. So they're investing in lots of different places around the world. So if North America does well, that part of that um, portfolio will do well. Uh, and if the UK is not doing well, then hopefully one at least offsets the other. So that's a good place to start, global funds and trusts. And finally, if you are tempted by high risk investment options, uh, perhaps invest a little bit less in those. And you shouldn't really be uh, putting all your eggs in one basket, especially in higher risk investments anyway. So high risk options should only ever make up a small portion of your overall investment portfolio. Otherwise, there are a good ways to go about, but just it's all about building a, a nice balanced portfolio. Thanks for listening. If you've got time, please like and follow the II Family Money Show and leave us a review or rating in your podcast app. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's financial future at ii.co.uk. I'll see you next time. <laughs>